Good morning. This is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest. Today is the 26th of May, 2019, and we are now going to embark upon uh, our next segment on hepatocellular carcinoma. This will be number four in the series. I predict there will be one more after this. Where we'll try to do more clinical discussions. Um, but right now, we're going to get deeply into the biochemistry where we left off last time. Now, you recall last time that we were finishing off a micro discussion of pseudoparadoxes and the fact that in the case of many biochemical phenomena that originally might look like a paradox because one set of data from the research literature says one thing and then another set of data appears to be contrary to that information, we found out after carrying out a kind of a very careful logical analysis that often what we end up with is not a real paradox at all, at best perhaps an irony. Um, and I went through all that last time. I'm not going to bother with it, with you uh, this time with going through the the realms of the square of opposition and subalternates. All I'm going to do is uh, come uh, get to the point where we left off, which is this. Again, we're talking about hepatocellular carcinoma. That aerobic glycolysis is indeed a hallmark of tumor metabolism. So that happens in all tumors, not just in hepatic cancer. Um, basically what it does is corrupt metabolic regulation overall, uh, systemically, uh, ultimately, because it wastes energy, uh, even in the presence of abundant molecular oxygen, meaning that rather than utilizing the TCA cycle uh, to oxidize carbon, uh, either um, from glucose directly or uh, by submitting acetyl-CoA, into the TCA cycle after beta oxidation, uh, rather than diverting it into ketogenesis, um, and then generate all that NADH and FADH2 that you get from the Krebs cycle, which can be reoxidized, those nucleotides getting reoxidized in the inner mitochondrial membrane, utilizing electron transport chain, and then via the proton motive force through complex five, making ATP through the proton pumping ATPase. Uh, internal vec vector making ATP within the mitosol and then transporting that ATP back out into the cytosol for utilization for bioenergetics. Rather than go through all that, you're only making a couple of ATP for glucose oxidation. And because of that, um, it's terribly inefficient. Also at the same time, uh, especially in obesogenic mode in humans, <coughs> you're taking up fatty acids from circulation from lipoproteins but rather than burning fatty acids in beta oxidation, you're still uh, vapidly oxidizing glucose. And even in the presence of oxygen, which you could certainly burn fatty acids, which do require molecular oxygen um, for beta oxidation, uh, that those fatty acids are then reincorporated into um, fat storage. And that's how you get hepatosteatosis. That's how you get a fatty liver, okay, because rather than burn the fatty acids in the liver, they're stored there. And so that, remember we talked before how that can lead to then fibrogenesis and then fibrosis and then through various stages of cirrhosis, 
leading often down that very dark hallway to hepatocellular carcinoma. And that's the only way to get there. We talked about hepatitis viruses also can leading you directly to HCC. And of course, liver damage caused just by regular oxidative metabolism. Uh, and also, of course, ingestion of ethanol, uh, which can uh, greatly progress all of these and advance all of these pathogenic states into hepatocellular carcinoma, and also illicit drugs and even pharmaceutical drugs. So you went through all that. So what we're saying is that <laughs> aerobic glycolysis may not actually cause the disease. It's just associated with it. Uh, and that's definitely uh, what we're going to try to involve in today. We're going to get deeply into the biochemistry. So I don't want to, I don't want to delay that any longer. So let me, let me explain to you a little bit about what's going on here. Remember that glycolysis has seven enzymatic reactions and that um, the, the, uh, the early reactions such as hexokinase and phosphofructokinase are highly regulated particularly PFK, phosphofructokinase, via PFK2. We're going to get into that in a few minutes. But towards the end, almost at the very end of the pathway, the synthesis of pyruvate, which is basically the last reaction in frank glycolysis, pyruvate kinase. Remember, we talked about that enzyme a little bit last time. And I want to get back to that. So as it turns out, um, there is that one isoform of uh, pyruvate kinase called PKM2. And we told you that that's uh, differentially expressed in damaged patho patho pathogenic cells, particularly in the liver. And we told you that this PKM2 can be used in the cytosol, but it can also find its way into the nucleus. And actually the PKM2 can also be secreted by a hepatocyte out into the extracellular matrix. So when it's in the cytosol, what can happen to PKM2 is it can do its normal metabolic function, which is convert uh, phosphopyruvate to pyruvate. And that it can exist as a tetramer in that state that the enzyme can. Um, so that's its normal metabolic function. And indeed, it, it, it's it, in the normal process of glycolysis what it's doing. However, you have to understand something else is going on in the cytoplasm. The dimeric form of the um, PKM2 can also affect protein kinase activity. It can induce it. And as a monomer, it's basically inert. It can be converted from the dimer to the monomer via phosphorylation, um, but it can also be converted via various intermediary metabolites. So the PKM2 tetramer to dimer monomer transition is actually regulated by fructose bisphosphate and by a compound known as SACAR, which is phosphoribosyl aminoamidazole succinocarboxamide. Okay, that's S-A-I-C-A-R. Now that is actually an intermediate, that compound is actually an intermediate in purine biosynthesis. And we're going to talk a lot about it in a few minutes. So that transition from being a dimer where it functions regularly uh, in the cytoplasm, but can also induce protein kinase activity, to the tetramer, which has a lot of other pleiotropic effects. When that happens, it can be induced by this purine nucleotide intermediate, this SACAR, by a fructose bisphosphate and by the amino acid serine. Okay? 
So all of those, in fact, cysteine and phenylalanine also can induce that tetrameric form of PKM2. And as I said, what can also modify this are post-translational modifications of the enzyme. And the, the, most of those will take the tetramer and drive them back to the dimer. And those post-translational modifications of the tetrameric mon uh, monomers embedded in that tetramer are things like phosphorylation of the enzyme, acetylation, and indeed oxidated oxidation. Okay, all those can happen. All right, now when PKM2 is in the nucleus, um, what happens there is rather interesting, okay? So it can exist as a dimer or a tetramer, but when it's in the nucleus, what happens is that it can regulate gene expression. In fact, it regulates transcription. It can promote the Warburg effect also in the nucleus by doing that because it's controlling glycolysis. Remember, Warburg effect is nothing more than glycolysis in the presence of molecular oxygen. But PKM2 also can generate genomic instability. It can maintain cancer stemness. That is what it does is then allow for um, the hepatocyte to generate um, an environment where more hepatocytes become uh, pathologically oncogenic. Likewise, nuclear PKM2 can generate the metastatic state. It can promote angiogenesis. This is all via the induction of expression of genes, by the way. It can also be involved in exocytosis of that protein and other ones. Because of that, it's involved in inflammation. And also, when PKM2 is found in the nucleus, those cells tend to be resistant to chemotherapeutics. Now, if PKM2 leaves the hepatocyte, something else happens. It can become then a, a matrix-associated protein. And indeed, once you find PKM2 outside the cell, that's a good clinical diagnosis that you have HCC. What does it do out there? That's where it promotes tumor angiogenesis, so laying down new blood vessels to, to feed the growing tumor. It also facilitates cancer cell migration and it is also directly linked, as is the nuclear PKM2, to resistance to chemotherapy. There's also a mitochondrial form of pyruvate kinase M2. And what it does is phosphorylate the protein BCL2. And it stabilizes BCL2 via using T69, another protein, which is also phosphorylated. What that does to the hepatocyte with the PKM2 mitochondrially localized, errantly, is it, in, it inhibits reactive oxygen species-induced apoptosis, and it actually activates raw scavenging systems. And that means it's going to allow for the immortalization of the cancer cell. So none of that is good, right? All right, so I just wanted to get an idea here. So there are interactions between the PKM2 and all kinds of cellular signaling as well. And these involve other enzymes in the glycolytic pathway, such as phosphofructokinase 2 FBPase. Uh, and that basically is the enzyme which synthesizes fructose 2,6-bisphosphate, which is an allosteric positive regulator of phosphofructokinase 1, and when phosphofructokinase 1 is activated, glycolysis is fully functional. So you understand that 
if PKM2 induces the expression of that gene, depending on the allosteric um, state, the equipose of that allosteric state, and it has to do with phosphorylation cascades, it can actually lead to heightened glycolysis because PF, uh, because uh, fructose 2,6-bisphosphate is an allosteric positive effector of PFK1, thus driving glycolysis down to fructose 1,6-bisphosphate. Now, there are other players here too. There's a protein called TIGER, or T-I-G-A-R, which is TP53. P53, of course, is the uh, tumor suppressor gene. So TP53 induced glycolysis and apoptosis regulator. That's what TIGAR stands for, T-I-G-A-R. Now, that's also <laughs> very important in this whole pathway. Now, what TIGAR does is it blocks the expression of that PFK2-FBPase, okay? Because it blocks that, it overall inhibits the synthesis of fructose 2,6-bisphosphate, because I told you about the equipose of the phosphorylation cascade of that enzyme complex with PFK1, FBPase 1, and effectively it shuts down glycolysis. So therefore, it's anti-tumor, right? So TIGAR directly alters that, and therefore it shuts down aerobic glycolysis. It shuts down the Warburg effect. At the same time, it promotes cell apoptosis. So that's a really important protein. And of course, it makes sense that a tumor suppressor gene, P53, would be involved in co-activating this TP53-induced glycolysis apoptosis, apoptosis regulator which is the TIGAR protein. It's a different protein than P53. But P53 actually induces the expression of TIGAR. So that's a really important feature of cells which are trying to remediate the carcinogenic state, right? So when TIGAR is made, it shuts down aerobic glycolysis. It shuts down all of the systems that would normally promote uh, the growth of the tumor. And it then starts to turn on uh, cell uh, program cell death via promotion of the genes and, and phosphorylation cascades regulating cell apoptosis. So that's all really important. So what happens though in, in the uh, oncogenic state is fructose-6-bisphosphate can actually, um, as well as glucose-6-phosphate, during the glycolytic phase of the aerobic glycolysis of the Barberg effect, that some of that carbon can be bled off into the um, to the oxidative pentose phosphate shunt. The pentose phosphate pathway then will allow for the biosynthesis of more macromolecules and the production of NADPH. All of that will do is that will enhance the synthesis of DNA and RNA and polypeptides, which will induce cell proliferation and division, all of which is going to enhance the, the cancer cell, right? So that's all, that's all a negative thing that occurs because of glycolytic pathway, you're turning on the oxidative pentose phosphate shunt. So that's a really bad, that, that, that's part of the hallmark of aerobic glycology. You see how it gets really complicated. Um, there are a lot of other things that are functioning up at that PFK1, uh, PFK2 locus, but those are some of the main ones to think about. Uh, another thing that PKM2 does, getting back to that, is that will actually induce genes at the transcriptional level. We mentioned this just last time, just a few minutes ago, that is. And those genes are all involved in cell proliferation and division. Those are part of the mTOR pathway. 
So that's all negative, right? Now, more about the PKM2, what will shut it down, shut down its expression, its activity, are tyrosine receptor kinases, okay? So those will block it. Uh, high concentrations of glucose will block PKM2, of course, because that would be shutting down glycolysis. And actually also high concentrations of reactive oxygen species. If you block PKM2, you block the synthesis of pyruvate. That also then will prevent the synthesis of lactate, which is a hallmark of aerobic glycolysis, um, and also shut down this whole uh, pro-cancerous state. So there's a lot of feedback control over that PKM2. Uh, thing is, it all breaks down because glucose uptake is enhanced. And unless glucose uptake via the glute transporter is blocked by P53 and indirectly by TIGAR, um, you're going to have rampant aerobic glycolysis and you're going to get the growth of the tumor. Right? So a paper published in Cell in 2006 uh, talks a little bit more about this. This is what this paper, this is the first time P53 tumor suppressor uh, uh, system was first described. Cell paper 2006, uh, volume 126, page 107 is the actual citation. What it says basically is this, summarized here now. P53 tumor suppressor stops cancer via the induction of cell cycle arrest. We already knew that. But it also causes apoptosis and it enhances the maintenance of genome stability. So this is all going to be anti-tumor activity. So back in 2006 when this paper was published, a P53 inducible gene named TIGAR, remember we call that T-I-G-A-R, which is again TP53 induced glycolysis apoptosis regulator, that's the acronym, and its expression lowered fructose 2,6-bisphosphate levels in the cell. That results in a drop in, in, in glycolysis because you don't have the positive allosteric effector any longer. You get an overall decrease in intracellular reactive oxygen species. And all of that is, again, uh, anti-tumorogenic. In fact, TIGAR protected from Ross-associated apoptosis and consequently the knockdown of endogenous TIGAR expression sensitizes cells to P53-induced apoptosis or programmed cell death. So this TIGAR is a multifunctional anti-tumorogenic system. But by 2016, the story gets more complicated. So 10 years later, more studies, lots more studies um, have, uh, are following up on TIGAR, the 2006 paper. This paper I'm talking about right now, published in the Journal of Biological Chemistry, probably my favorite journal, was published in December 16, 2016. And the volume of that is 291. The page number is 26291. Uh, and ongoing. So now I'm going to tell you what that paper says, okay? Here, here it is. TIGAR decreases glycolysis by functioning as a bisphosphatase that reduces the level of the intracellular fructose 2,6-bisphosphate and actually also 2,3-bisphosphoglycerate, another intermediate in the pathway uh, at the level of glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate dehydrogenase, which also helps promote glycolysis in the negative aerobic glycolytic pathway. So PFK1 is a key, of course, glycolytic enzyme because it converts fructose 6-phosphate to fructose 1,6-bisphosphate, leading down the glycolysis pathway. As it turns out, as I said, PFK1 is allosterically activated by the fructose 2,6-bisphosphate. And of course, the fructose 2,6-bisphosphate 
is an inhibitor of the fructose 1,6-bisphosphatase, which would otherwise turn glycolysis around and make it gluconeogenic. That all opposes the activity then of PFK1 by converting fructose 1,6-bisphosphate to fructose 6-phosphate, thus stopping glycolysis in its tracks. So the synthesis and breakdown of fructose 2,6-bisphosphate depends upon that function, bifunctional enzyme, uh, which we effectively call PFK2, um, FBPase2. Uh, now, that actually, that gene is only one gene. It's a bifunctional protein when it's made. Uh, there are four isozymes of that, and they are called PFKFB1 through 4, and they code for different phosphofructokinase 2 uh, bisphosphatase 2 isoenzymes. And they all have distinct cellular expression patterns, and they display actually different kinase to bisphosphatase activity ratios depending on where they're found. So like, for example, the muscle enzyme works in the opposite direction, something I cover a lot when I talk about regular cellular biochemistry. Not going to get into it here. It also has control over a, a, a lot of different protein kinases, and they affect it as well. So in tumor cells, the concentration of fructose 2,6-bisphosphate is generally elevated due to the overexpression of the PFK2, FBPase2, isoform 3, right? Remember I told you there are four different isoforms, four different uh, genes for that, right? <laughs> okay, so that's going to have an opposite effect on Tigar. Now check this out. Tigar depletion increases glycolytic flux by increasing the activity of PFK1. We already mentioned that. And the glycolytic flux itself is going to be turned on because when you deplete Tigar, right, you increase the level of fructose 2,6-bisphosphate. However, perhaps Tigar modulates catabolism of other carbon sources, such as lactate and glutamine. Because okay, this is a, a protein regulator. Remember, this isn't just an enzyme. And they have all been shown to be alternate catabolized to glucose for cancer cells. So if we're using lactate or glutamine and Tigar is positively affecting their metabolism, could be the Tigar expression, once it becomes constitutive in these cancer cells, can actually enhance carcinogenesis, okay? So Tigar expression has been shown to inversely associate with glycolysis. We already said that. Tigar expression is also inversely associated with 2-deoxyglucose uptake when you look at PET scans in human subjects with non-small cell lung carcinoma. Now, that's a positive thing because lack of glucose uptake is good, right? And we use 2-deoxyglucose in PET scans because it's what you take when you're getting a PET scan because that particular glucose... Um, substrate is not metabolized because it's a deoxyglucose. That's what's used in PET scans. So Tigar also regulates hexokinase 2 activity, which is really important in the liver. And it increases yet something else. It increases mitochondrial membrane potential. But the effect of Tigar on mitochondrial metabolism, oxygen consumption rates and ATP generation is still being investigated. That's because of its potential pleiotropic effect on glutamine metabolism and, as I said, lactate metabolism. As uh, of most reports uh, that are right now, 
Tigar reduces glycolysis, but Tigar has been reported, reported still to mediate human cancer aggressiveness. Okay. Now, all of that was published like, what, three years ago, not quite three years ago, in the JBC, I guess two and a half years, if I'd be more precise. So you can believe, you can, you can expect that there's been a lot more, there's been a lot more papers um, that have come since 2016 that address this issue. And I'm not going to get into them right now, but in subsequent lectures, I certainly can. I just wanted to give you a heads up. And this is all to do with what I'm trying to describe to you about spot paradoxes and pseudo paradoxes and biochemical activity. When you start looking at very complex systems like pathophysiological states. Okay. And that leads into a further discussion of dia event ontological paradigmatic understanding of cellular metabolism as it, as it relates to disease, but also to the healthy state of the, of the uh, system, of the organism. By that, I mean that we have to look at how things differ according to cell types and tissue types over time. And we have to look at the genome, the environment, both internal and external. And we have to look at the immunoepigenome all of which helps tailor these processes. And we haven't even gotten into that yet, right? All right. Let me just finish Tiger for now, and we're going to stop this lecture uh, and get back, uh, and we'll do number five subsequently because we want to keep this under 30 minutes. So finishing TIGAR for now. Carcinoma cells overexpressing Tiger have reduced glucose uptake and lactate production. However, fibroblasts, remember those are very important in the development of hepatocellular carcinoma, fibroblasts in co-culture with Tigar overexpressing carcinoma cells induce HIF, remember HIF is hypoxia-inducible factor 1-alpha. They induce it and activate it, and that increases glucose uptake in those um, uh, 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 newly synthesized um, fibrogenic cells, right? And that increases then, all of that increases not only glucose uptake, but HIF also increases the PFK2, FBPH2, isoform 3, and lactic dehydrogenase A expression. All of that and the fibrocell mass in the liver is going to actually induce more aerobic glycolysis. So we're not talking about uh, the carcinoma cell. We're talking about the associated fibroblast, see? But those can then lead down to ultimately hepatocellular carcinoma because of what happens because of fibrosis occurring. So indeed, tiger overexpression in carcinoma cells increases tumor growth in vivo in the liver, and a catalytically active variant of tiger does not induce tumor growth, which is, of course, the experiment that was conducted. So unfortunately, the details suggest that Tigar expression in breast carcinoma, where some of this work has been done, promotes metabolic compartmentalization and tumor growth with a mitochondrial metabolic phenotype that includes lactate and glutamine metabolism. So this then, again, adds more color, more three-dimensionality to our discussion of uh, these disease states. I'm going to leave you with that now because uh, I just wanted to do some of that metabolism. And then we're going to get back to this um, in our fifth um, segment on hepatocellular carcinoma. We're going to do some more biochemistry. And then we're going to get into a little bit of glycosylation patterns. 
So this is Dan Guerra uh, signing off for now. And thank you very much for your attention. And uh, bye for now.